1: is where we live from connecticut public radio i'm sujata shinivasan and for catherine shen in just a few hours advocates pushing to reduce wheelchair repair delays will protest at the state capitol coming up we'll hear from one of them but first disability rights advocates in connecticut are demanding better medical access this legislative session they're asking lawmakers to pass two bills Both aim to improve medical equipment and training and access to better care when examining, diagnosing and treating patients with disabilities. Our producer Katie Pellico spoke to eight people from the Citizens Coalition for Equal Access, a disability rights organization right here in Connecticut, on their negative experiences in medical settings. People like Sam Bodie in North Brantford. What he needed when he needed to get onto his cardiologist's examination table, his mom and dad were right there with him to help him move from the wheelchair onto the table. Bodhi says the doctor then told him, and I quote, This is why you people, end quote, should be treated at the hospital. Andy Bate in Windsor was a social worker for 20 years. He's helped people with disabilities navigate medical settings, but he also has first hand experience navigating for himself. Let's take a in listen. terms of
2: um, my personal experience one that particularly sticks out is when I went to a major radiology provider in this in this state and um, they were like well we can't help you you know and I was like why not and they were like well you need to be able to walk to the x-ray table and you need to be able to be able to transfer yourself I took one of their walkers and I was able to just barely make it to the table, and with their help, I was able to get on the table. But they took the x-ray, and right after they took the x-ray, I, I heard in the background, you know, looks good, let's get him out of here. And not in, a, not in a good way, it was more like, this guy's a liability, we gotta get him out of here. And then when <clears throat> when I was done, they were like, well, you, you know, you can't come back here. We're gonna make you go to the hospital whenever you need x-rays. And I was just, I was stunned to say the least. And the scary thing is that, you know, that's just one experience of a multitude that everybody um, in this space now has experienced. So.
1: Mm. For more on legislative efforts and their hopes this session, we have two other members with the Citizens Coalition for Equal Access joining us now via Zoom Dr. Cindy Miller, former associate professor at Yale, and Dr. Ruth. Uh, and Ruth Groby, Coalition Secretary. Welcome to both of you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And you can join us too. Join the conversation, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and X at Where We Live. Dr. Miller, I understand you have congenital muscular dystrophy, so you cannot walk and you use a wheelchair. Tell me how your disability, combined with your medical training you're a radiologist, is shaping your advocacy work well,
3: it's actually quite interesting. I was able to walk up until the time when I fractured my femur um, shortly after I arrived in New Haven in two thousand one and um so my experience has really changed since I became dependent on a wheelchair. And shortly after beginning my work at Yale, I found for myself an internist um, at Yale who had asked me if I was interested in teaching medical students. And I said, yes, I would be very interested in doing that. and. They conduct a session once a year for medical students right before they go on to the wards to begin their clinical training. Mm -hmm. And it's about disability and how um, it basically is just an introduction to disability for the students. And Mm -hmm. it's been really eye-opening for me when I first went to teach this session, I thought, maybe half the class would be there. They were all sitting there very attentively. And each year they present amazing questions to me about disability, because this is the introduction to disability for students who have been there in school for a year and a half. So after I stopped working as a physician as a radiologist, I decided that I still had something left in myself to give. Mm. And so I pursued a degree in social work and I discovered that advocacy was the area of greatest interest to me. And frankly, who better to advocate for than people like myself. I've experienced it. I know the story. And so that's what sort of informed my advocacy.
1: Ruth, how about you? How did you get involved with disability rights?
4: Well, like Dr. Miller, I have a master's degree in social work uh, from the 1980s, and there was very little disability content in the curriculum of my school at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I was somewhat under, and since I did not know any personal family members or friends who used a wheelchair, I was under the impression that uh, the ADA had solved everything Mm -hmm. for people with physical disabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I became chairperson of the Farmington Human Relations Commission, which is a uh, commission of town government that's charged with promoting equality of treatment and opportunity Mm -hmm. for all residents of Farmington. And since um, in in Farmington, there is New Horizons Village, which is an apartment complex that offers independent living for people with disabilities, I thought, well, why don't we have a Human Relations Commission meeting at New Horizons to see how everything is going for the tenants there? And there was a huge turnout of people. It turned Mm -hmm. out the institutions in Farmington, there were an enormous number of physical and attitudinal barriers that still existed for people with disabilities. It was a real eye-opener for me. I started to make friends with people with disabilities and see how Mm -hmm. uh, the larger society pretty much still renders them invisible. Mm -hmm. um, And it's very hard for them to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. So, um, one of the Farmington Institutions was the Yukon Health Center, where many of our uh, citizens' coalition uh, members get their health services. Mm. And um, the Human Relations Commission was joined by a uh, retired member of the Yukon School of Medicine faculty, Mm. Ray Elling, who was a wonderful advocate. Disabled himself, Mm. and he put us in touch with Mary Beth Bruder, the director. Director of the Yukon Center for University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities and Mary Beth put us in touch with a group of activist medical students who really cared about the Mm. issue of physical accessibility.
1: Now, um, I just want to give a quick uh, context. Um, Ruth, you spoke about people with disability being invisible, and yet, according to the CDC. One in four adults in Connecticut have a disability. Now that's an all-encompassing data. Um, you know, for example, the state estimates that roughly 43,000 residents have a developmental disability, but one in four adults. Now, um, Dr. Miller, I want to know from you, uh, bird's eye view, a, a quick um, a feedback about, you know, what, what your hopes are for uh, the, this legislative session. Advocates are pushing for two bills. One, as you know, is aimed at improving availability and access to medical equipment, and also importantly, training around the use of those equipments, like scales and x-ray machines. And the other is aimed specifically at lifts. What are your hopes um, for for this legislation, um, this short session?
3: Well, certainly my hopes are, one, just to raise this issue before we accomplish anything very specific. We need to make this issue front and center Mm. because the physicians and most medical students don't realize Mm. how prevalent disability is amongst the patients whom they're going to be treating. That's number one, before we even get to what our specific goals are. And then to, make it necessary that everybody recognizes the fact that we must have the ability to examine our patients in their entirety, not trying to get by with the minimum, but to make sure that every patient with a disability Mm. is able to get a complete exam. And this means examining their entire skin surface Mm. for early lesions that may develop into melanoma Mm. if they're not more closely watched. It amounts to listening to their lungs, not only in the front, Mm. but in the back. Mm. And so by telling the, the physicians and telling the public, what a complete physical exam amounts to, Mm. that is the way we're going to be able to best advocate for the use of equipment that is accessible to every patient who comes into the office. Not only the patients who walk into the office, Mm -hmm. but those who ride into the office.
1: Now, there are laws. I mean, there are regulations and we are hearing more and more um, from people with disability that they're falling to, through the gaps. So one advocate that our um, uh, producer Katie Pelico spoke to, Jamie uh, Moser in Unionville, describes having to travel with an aide for medical visits to transfer him onto tables or scales uh, and a lift should be doing that job. He describes those medical tables as narrow balanced beams. Now the cur- there is a current law in Connecticut that requires medical facilities, and I quote, take into consideration. The US Access both standards around disabilities. Here's what Jamie thinks about that.
3: You can take into consideration anything you want, but that's not good enough. We have to make a difference. Taking into consideration is just not enough. Something has to be passed to make sure we get what I need or we get what everybody needs before we're all dead.
1: It's heartbreaking to hear Dr. Miller, could you respond to what we just heard from Jamie how you know how common is his experience in this in this demographic?
3: His experience is very common amongst those with disabilities. My own physician had said to me at one time, oh, he could just lift me onto the table with one hand, which he could do. Mm. And then the following year, I went to see him for my annual appointment Mm. and he said to me, well, Yale no longer allows physicians to pick up patients. So I can examine you in your chair. He didn't suggest to me that I bring somebody with me, but he made it very clear that he could no longer do that. So while he, you know, the question of having an aide with me or an assistant was never raised, I can tell you about taking an assistant with me to an appointment, not because I expected that there were going to be any needs, but just because I wanted her to hear what the physician said, Mm. I found that the physician at that point spoke to my aid rather
1: than speaking to me. Mm. So one, of course, is, um, you know, patient doctor patient um, relationship, interaction. And the other aspect is the thoroughness of the medical examination itself. And you explained, uh, you know, you being a doctor yourself, that it's important um, to examine a patient, you know, who in a both sitting as well as in a horizontal um uh, position. Otherwise, I'm uh, um, um, assuming that certain um, uh, symptoms could be missed, um, um, Dr. Miller? Uh, yes. In
3: fact, the reason why medical students are taught to listen, for instance, to the lungs, um, not only in the front, but in the back, is because the lobes of the lungs really extend from the front of the rib cage to the back and certain lobes have more greater bulk in the back of one's body than in the front. Mm. So unless one specifically examines the patient from the front and from the back, it's very conceivable that they're going to miss things.
1: Thank you. Now, our producer spoke with Public Health Committee co-chair, State Senator Dr. Saud Anwar, about his involvement in drafting the bills. Let's take a listen
5: empathy should not stop at one specific area we should be able to look at it as a much more comprehensive but with respect to changing the environment the structure and so on that is somewhat limited to the physical disability component and and i think that's where the federal regulations have been a little behind so there were arguments that people were making that they said well we don't want to invest into a structure that about uh, two years from now would become obsolete when the federal guidelines come and my personal view is that we cannot wait forever for the federal government to uh, come up with a, a solution or a prescription for this uh, so we should start to do what we can and then at least create the entire we don't even have a map a, frankly a map of all the hospitals all the systems all the healthcare facilities and their capacity so irrespective of uh, what and when the federal government is going to say something are we ready to even implement
1: Ruth, could you briefly comment on the federal ruling that State Senator Anwar talked about and why, um, in addition to that, state legislation is is also important from your perspective?
4: Yes, Abhi. The uh, U.S. Access Board um which is the technical body that makes recommendations as to what should be required what kind of technical requirements should be required under um, various statutes um, in 2017 they published standards for accessible medical diagnostic equipment and that includes exam tables as you've clearly heard weight scales um, x-ray machines imaging machines mammography machines and those standards have been there since 2017 but they are only recommendations and the federal government has made several attempts to turn them into regulations under the ADA or under section 504, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 but it's been an incredibly slow process and there is rulemaking going on right now um, by both the Department of Health and Human Services and and the Department of Justice and the the legislation we'd like to work on with Senator Anwar takes a lot of the language from the federal rulemaking, but um, there is no reason why we can't adopt it as a state before the federal regulations are finally passed.
1: And Ruth, what do you think? So sorry, what do you think of a, a State Senator's suggestion to map healthcare systems?
4: I think that will help. Um and uh I think it's However, we've been working for two years on an accessible MDE task force where the only thing that's happened has been some attempts at educating the medical community about the issue of accessible MDE. And I think without legislation, without adopting regulations, uh, we're putting it off even further. And meanwhile, I've watched several members of CC equals A pass away. Um, and I think it, it's time to act. There, there are present There's precedent for states going ahead of the federal government, and um, mm-hmm. we have a, a legislation drafted that we hope we can work with Senator Anwar and the mm-hmm. Public Health Committee on getting passed this year. In terms of the lift legislation, um, we have submitted uh, some language in consultation with. Uh, Disability experts in Connecticut and nationally. And we, because lifts do not technically qualify as medical diagnostic equipment, um, but are critical to transferring patients with physical disabilities, um, it's important to uh, improve the provision of lifts in medical facilities across the state as well. And I'd like to finally say that our effort, uh, this is for people with mobility disabilities, of course, but our effort is part of a larger movement in the Connecticut disability community. Access to healthcare for people with disabilities um, is a, a not adequate um, for people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities, and so we're working as part of a larger movement to um, address the entire issue.
1: Now, MDE, um, a note uh, to clarify for listeners, is medical diagnostic equipment. Now, Ruth, you were named a witness in a lawsuit filed Wednesday with the U.S. Department of Justice alleging affirmative discrimination against people with mobility uh, abilities in this state. Can you briefly tell us about this?
4: Could you repeat, please?
1: So you were named a witness in a lawsuit filed Wednesday with the U.S. Department of Justice alleging, yes, yes, affirmative discrimination against people with mobility disabilities in Connecticut. So can you tell us a little bit about this?
4: Yes, I, I first want to say that our strat, uh, we would prefer a legislative strategy to address this issue, Because filing individual ADA complaints puts all the onus on people with disabilities who are already struggling with the tasks of daily living Mm. and the barriers that exist in the society. Mm. Um, And to take individual responsibility is not the strategy we want to go with. It's a systemic problem and it needs to be addressed systemically. But there was one situation that was so egregious, um, and I helped a CC equals A member. I was a witness when she um, called a local, a radiology company to try to make an appointment and was told that she couldn't be accommodated, or she was told that they only took people who used wheelchairs if they could uh, stand and pivot on their own. And I was, uh, able, I overheard that phone conversation with the representative of the radiology company.
1: Mm. And, and you're referring to uh, Miss um,
4: Gurafa, uh, am I right? Yes, yes, yes. And um, the the uh, ADA complaint is based on the fact that 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 is a violation of both um, Title three of the ADA and Section five hundred four of the Rehabilitation Act of nineteen seventy three. Thank you. We
1: only have a few um, uh, seconds left in this segment, and I want to end with your reactions to one clip. Producer Katie Pellico spoke uh, with uh, Suzanne Garrafa from West Hartford, um, who calls herself a, a, a fighter. Here she is.
6: There's no scales. There's no way to get on the table. Um, when people go and you bring your aid with you, they talk to the aid, they don't talk to you. So what we're doing right now is I'm going to the legislature with our group to get things changed. We don't need people to come in and take care of us and say, you can't do this, you have to listen to us. All right? I'm not one of those people. I don't listen to what people tell me to do. I see what's going on and I try to change it. I'm not gonna say that people don't care, but they don't care. It's very hurtful that I have to go to the doctor's daily and I get told, we can't take care of you because you can't stand anymore. When I first came here, I was a person that stood, I was a person that stand. I had crutches, I had a walker. I can no longer do that anymore. So people are making you feel like you're not a person anymore, but that's not the reason why I'm here. The reason why I'm here is to help things change.
1: Heartbreaking. And even, I suppose, well meaning uh, people in the healthcare industry might not have perhaps thought this through, um, you know, of what it's like to be on the other side. Dr. Miller, um, how would you respond to what Suzanne uh, just said? Well, I must say that I
3: have experienced fairly similar um, reactions when. People try to take care of me. I've had the privilege though that for instance, as far as radiology goes, that I was a radiologist. So when I go into Yale and I say, you know, I I've come for an X-ray, they do everything they can possibly do to position the X-ray tube in a way that it can do the work that would normally be done by the patient moving him or herself. So I've not experienced exactly what Suzanne has experienced uh, in that regard. However, having heard about Suzanne's experience with a particular practice in this state, I said to myself, well, I know radiologists who work in that practice. Let me see if this is really so. And rather than identifying myself as Dr. Miller, I just said, I'm Cindy Miller and I use a wheelchair and I need to get an X-ray. I wanted to find out whether you'd be able to accommodate me Mm. at your office. Mm. And I was told point blank, no, that's not going to be possible. And I thought to myself, is this really going on Mm. in 2023 when I made my phone call? I was just incredulous. So this is the truth. And this is the kind of thing that we are truly being activists about.
1: I'm so sorry that you and... um... Uh, a whole demographic of uh, our fellow uh, citizens are going through this. You've been listening to members of the Citizens Coalition for Equal Access, Dr. Cindy Miller and Ruth Groby. After a break, we'll get an update on a related legislative effort to improve wheelchair repair times. We are hours away from a protest held by wheelchair users and advocates at the state capitol. You can join the conversation, eight 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 seven two zero. WNPR, or write to us your comments, your questions on Facebook and on X at Where We Live.
6: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare.
1: From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Sujata Shanivasan, in for Catherine Shen. At half past noon today, wheelchair users will gather at the state capitol. They plan to protest in support of the wheelchair repair task force's legislative recommendations to tackle the, I quote, absurd delays faced by 90% of roughly 5,000 Connecticut consumers. Joining us now via Zoom, Jonathan Sigworth consumer spokesperson for the Connecticut Wheelchair Repair Task Force. He is also co-founder of More Than Walking. Jonathan, welcome to where we live.
0: Hi, good morning, thank you, love um, love the chance to be here.
1: Morning, I understand you met with a bicycle accident in the foothills of the Himalayas in Missouri, India during a study abroad program. You were only 19 at the time when you were told that you could no longer use your legs. Since then, you've been back in India many times, even launching India's first wheelchair rugby team, I, I see in your uh, mm-hmm. short documentary. So where does all this passion come from, Jonathan?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, maybe one explanation is my sport of choice in high school was extreme unicycling. So I had always a penchant for kind of the odd and the extreme Um, and the adventurous so that was really good preparation for life as a quadriplegic having to learn how to balance and and move and Mm. and become independent you know only being you know not having any sensation or or movement below my arms
2: Mm.
0: but I mean I guess another part too was you know I I grew up in in a fairly religious family and we had a very
1: having some um, audio difficulties, Zoom trauma, as I think we've all grown to call it.
0: No matter what happens.
1: Jonathan, um, Jonathan, hi. Uh, We lost you uh for a few seconds, but you're back on now. Are you still here with us? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. We can hear you. Yep. Yep. We lost you for a few seconds. Yeah, you're on now, Jonathan.
0: All right. Yeah. So um, I was saying, you know, I, I grew up with a, with a family that had a strong sense of of self worth and you know purpose for the community. And as soon as I became paralyzed, I really believed that I was introduced into an amazing community, diverse community uh, that I really wanted to learn more about. And the opportunities to serve have just abounded since then, and that's really guided my life's work. Mm-hmm.
1: Incredible. In a moment, we're going to talk about your advocacy around wheelchair repair timeliness. But first, our producer Katie Pellico spoke with Gary Gross from Unionville. He has cerebral palsy. And after his uh, wheelchair tilt broke, he had canceled dentist appointments. Since that would allow him to tilt back um, to be treated, he uh, got a call from the dentist um, who said he could no longer see him as a patient. Um, And um, I and Katie Pellico spoke to him um, ahead of uh, this hour. I wanted to get your response to experiences uh, like Gary's. Is is it common?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, the you know when wheelchairs break, um, they break down significantly. A flat tire, you know, something as simple as a flat tire can really uh, get you stuck in your home. Um, and then you have more complicated things, uh, you know, maybe dead batteries or broken foot plates. Um, but currently, you know, it's it's a on average, um one month wait time uh to get someone to come to your home in person. It's really uh making people suffer. Um there's a lot of issues around that. And and it's quite common, almost every six months, uh, if not more more often, wheelchair users need a repair done.
1: Now, um, so I'm looking now at the flyer for the upcoming protest at the state capitol this afternoon. It's quite a powerful image. It's it's a bright orange sky, almost uh, you know fiery, a sort of a call to action. Um, and beneath it is our grand uh, state capitol. and um, we have uh, people. You know, the, the post I'm looking at uh, people in wheelchairs. Uh, in front you know in a circular um, uh, uh, forming a circular uh, direction right in front of the capital you know their fists raised and you know talk about uh, wheelchair, you know, as access, as access to their freedom. And, um, you know, when you put it that way, it's, it's quite powerful. You know, when you walk, when you walk down the road on a grocery store, and you see somebody in a wheelchair, you don't think of it as, you know, it's, it's their freedom, the mobility, the freedom. Um, and um, I want to, you know, what, what's for the agenda today? I mean, what can we expect at this rally?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that's absolutely right. We're we're going to be emphasizing that wheelchairs are our freedom. That's why we absolutely need uh, four days, not 30, um, four days mandate for businesses to come out um, mm. and provide in-home repair assessments. That's mm. just to figure out what's wrong. And then another four days to get it repaired once all the parts and insurance authorization is complete. Mm. Um, and those are really our, 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 uh, primary demands and today what you what people can expect is uh you know to hear a bunch of consumer stories Mm -hmm. uh to hear about you know our our lives and what it's really like living in a wheelchair i think Mm -hmm. a lot of the issues that people have heard on this program so far today you know you know not being able to transfer onto an x-ray machine and all these things Mm -hmm. there's just a lack of understanding of what living in a wheelchair really means Mm -hmm. and the real limits that we experience when they break and the complications Mm -hmm. of yeah, we need to travel with aids and there's logistic concerns and there's safety concerns and there's extreme time constraints that we live. And, um, you know, the the industry, you know, both for wheelchair services as well as for insurance are giving us severe pushback. You know, they're saying no mandates. We we can't afford mm. uh, to fix your broken chairs in less than one month. You know, how many of us, you know, if you rely on a vehicle to go to work, to visit family, to do everything you do every single day. You know, our lives revolve around getting around in private transportation. It seems if you had to wait one month for your car to get fixed, Mm. you'd go somewhere else, right? Mm. Um, You'd you'd switch companies. We don't have that option. We rely on our insurance. Mm. We can't pay for these expenses out of pocket and Mm. we need government to, to mandate these timeline requirements as well as reforms to insurance coverage. Otherwise, we're literally mm. uh, bedridden and developing pressure sores and, and adding more costs to mm. the whole healthcare system you know, when we get even more hurt.
1: And obviously, from these experiences that we are hearing, the free market uh, competition among wheelchair repair companies hasn't really worked because it looks like everyone is taking just about the same time. And I, I, um, and I see that your legislation, um, the push for the legislation is also looking to eliminate the need for prior authorization uh, for wheelchair repairs. Um, so that, that would also uh, shorten the time, um, is, is the hope, I understand.
0: Right. Yes. Well, I mean, there's the prior authorization so that just so people know, you know, you need a prescription to get a wheelchair, but currently you still need a prescription to get that wheelchair repaired, which is ridiculous, right? If your insurance pays for your wheelchair, why do you need to ask their permission to get it fixed? Um, So that's just needless bureaucracy. Uh, But the eight days is significant. But, you know, if you look at the timeline that the industry provided in our task force that I've been on in the last six months, Mm -hmm. You know, it's two months. Literally, mm. is is solely responsible uh, for the wheelchair services companies due to their lack of staffing. Two months uh, is is delay on their part. They have the parts in. Mm. Insurance is is passed. Mm. Um, insurance coverage is provided, uh, but two months of of the delay is is due to their own constraints. So that's what we're really focusing on.
1: Thank you so much, Jonathan. A real pleasure to have you on Where We Live, a consumer spokesperson for the Connecticut Wheelchair Repair Task Force. Tune into Connecticut Public throughout the day for coverage of the rally and more. Our state capital reporter Michaela Savitt will be reporting from Hartford. Thanks also to Ruth Groby for your time. After a break, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Cindy Miller from the Citizens Coalition for Equal Access, also joining us, a UConn student working to improve medical access for people with disabilities. Join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Arshanivasan, in for Catherine Shen. This hour, we are getting an update on one of the legislative efforts aimed at improving medical access for people with disabilities in Connecticut. Students at the UConn Medical School got together to form the Disability Interest Group. That's after they identified gaps in their own education to examine and treat people with a range of disabilities. Joining us now via phone, Carly Muleski, a student at Yukon Medical School and a member of the Disability Interest Group. And still with us, Dr. Cindy Miller, member, Citizens Coalition for Equal Access. Carly, welcome to where we live.
7: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Pleasure. Can you tell us about some of the updates to the curriculum uh, that you've seen through your involvement with the uh, Disability Interest Group?
7: Yeah, so with the Disability Interest Group, I'm fortunate to work alongside a lot of passionate medical students both fourth year, first year, second year, all, of all years, and organizing really various educational events and opportunities to volunteer, and this Im- also involves curriculum review, and I've also had the opportunity to work on some of those curriculum. Mm. So the first week of medical school, first year students, we have sessions that help students develop the tools to treat patients with disabilities, and I really value this, really, this early exposure back when I was a first year, so I was really motivated to continue this. During the session, we touch upon very basic things like the definition of disability, Mm. equality versus equity, and liberation. Mm. Even Going further to addressing individual disabilities as well Mm. as the spectrum of disability Mm. and get students really thinking about accommodations for these patients. Mm. And then continuing with that, we also have a public health course, which we call vital. Mm. We touch upon disability insurance and the structure of how to approach patients with disabilities. And this Mm. can be anything from... Uh, addressing access and accommodations in the office, Mm -hmm. ensuring accessible follow-up, and making sure that the care is patient-centered. And we also carry this into some clinical skills. We have our doc program, which we call, like, how to be a doctor, Mm -hmm. and really focus on identifying these resources for patients. And in the future, we really want to incorporate this work formally into the clinical curriculum, Mm -hmm. so practicing asking these questions on real patients and applying the resources.
1: That's that's great. Dr. Miller, can you talk about why having medical schools involved in this effort is necessary?
3: Well, it's absolutely necessary because of the prevalence of disability amongst the community. One cannot have a practice that is solely composed of non-disabled people, and as we've already you know, mentioned, there every adult or so many adults will become disabled during their later years that someone who is not disabled right now has a very good chance of becoming disabled. So this is a skill that needs to be incorporated into medical education.
1: Mm. Carly, tell me about you personally, your background. What got you invested um, and motivated in this aspect of medical care?
7: Yeah, so back in high school, I was actually um, involved really early working with people with disabilities through the I Can Shine Bike program. So mm-hmm. I learned how teaching only patients or individuals how to ride a bike really led to increasing their independence, and I was able to play a role in that and really enjoyed it. But mm-hmm. so through the opportunity, I learned that people with disabilities aren't really any different. You know, they're my friends, my, my peers, and it's really important for the entire world to see them that way. And I'm fortunate enough to carry this attitude into healthcare settings, as Dr. Miller just addressed, mm-hmm. that many patients have... Chronic illnesses, disabilities may require really lengthy hospital t- days or frequent visits mm. with providers. So it's really important to make those interactions as positive as possible for both the patient and the physician. And that includes having the appropriate equipment to evaluate them as well as doing this in a timely manner. Mm.
1: Dr. Miller, now the system already has patient navigators, community health workers, um, but you've also raised the idea of doulas as potentially useful in a medical setting. You know, sort of a parallel. Um, you know, the, the work of doulas um, to a parallel in you um, know setting for people with disabilities. Can you talk about that? How would it work? So my idea is just as
3: doulas are assistance typically in the setting of pregnant women Mm. and provide all kinds of assistance, not only, or I should say, a lot of emotional assistance. I am thinking that a doula could act in the setting of patients with disabilities as sort of a go-between, between the physician and the patient so the doula I could conceive of as being an advocate mm. for the patient, a translator for the patient, a perhaps even a reminder to the uh, physician mm. that the physician should be speaking to the patient mm. and not to the doula, mm. but that here is an extra person to kind of, Explain or navigate for the patient. Um, not so much in as a person who can do the physical things mm. that the physician isn't doing, mm. but to be there as a go-between. And I think that's the same function really as a doula in the setting of obstetrics. Mm. So it's to be an active go-between. Between the physician and the patient,
1: and that would be um, the cost sharing. Um, I suppose would be on the part of uh, the insurance company and the copay of the patient, and um, you know perhaps uh, you know for people covered um, under yeah, um, Medicaid, uh, some investment from the state as well to expand care. Um, am I am I right in my thinking?
3: I think you're correct in your thinking. I haven't gone so quite so far as to figure out how, how the financing would be accomplished. But given the fact that I think it would lead to greater success of and greater degree of satisfaction mm-hmm. of both the patients and the physicians, mm-hmm. I think financing would be accomplished given that realization.
1: If you were to name Dr. Miller, top three misconceptions that contribute to these gaps in care, what would it be?
3: That people with disabilities do not have expectations that they are going to ever get complete exams. Um, can you repeat your question just so I'm certain I'm answering it?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the, miscon- the misconceptions contributing to gaps in care for people with disabilities, what would you say your personal experience and what you've observed observed are the top three misconceptions?
3: So I, I will, again, repeat the first one, that people with disabilities don't have the expectation that they are going to be completely examined, and that they will be satisfied with less than a complete exam. Mm -hmm. I
1: think that's number one, two, and three. Carly, would you briefly like to respond to that? I mean, what are the top misconceptions you've observed? Hello, Carly. Are you here with us? Sorry, I'm back. All right. Um, so what, yeah, did you, what, what are some top misconceptions, top two or three yeah. misconceptions?
7: Well, Some of the same things that Dr. Miller already addressed, but that, the, you know, the care should be different. There's different expectations. I think every patient should be treated on an individualized manner. And that involves, you know, taking the time to talk to the patient, making it very patient-centered. And taking the time for a thorough exam, and yes, there may be some accommodations for each individual patient, um, but providers just have to be cognizant of that and open to Mm -hmm. tailoring their interviews and physical exams to that patient.
1: You know, absolutely. I think it all comes down, it filters down to the humanization of medicine. Thank you both. You've been listening to a member of the Citizens Coalition for Equal Access, Dr. Cindy Miller, and Yukon medical student Carly Muleski. You can see images of some of the inspiring people you heard from this morning, including Suzanne Gurafa on the Where We Live website. I'm Sujata Srinivasan. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and be well.